0: we begin with the actual construction of the temple. Now the first thing I want to say here is you must understand that this is not Solomon's design for the temple. It's not his blueprints for the temple. It's not his design. It's not even really technically his project. It is David's. God specifically told David in 2nd Samuel chapter 7 he was not to build a temple. David interpreted that as he was not allowed to build a temple, not that a temple was not allowed to be built. And so David blueprinted, and I doubt that David was up in his room like doing drafting and that kind of stuff and architecture, but he had probably much input into what it was to look like and had it drafted out and blueprinted for the temple. He gathered all the supplies. To have the temple built. Minus the cedars and that kind of stuff. Because wood doesn't store very well. So, but the articles in the temple and all this kind of stuff. Solomon is basically executing his father's dream. How much this is Solomon's dream? How much of his, his desire? How much he has altered the blueprint? So we have no idea. Even when he dedicates to the temple, he mentions that this is his father's project. Now granted... He probably had a huge investment as well, because you don't take dad's dream and make it possible when it's going to cost you several billion dollars, unless you've bought into it as well, unless it's become your passion as well. The first thing we want to start with is, for some of you already ready for this, because I talked about this in Samuel, um, for others, this is a huge shock, but God, this temple should have never happened. And this temple was never built in any godly way. And I know that's a huge shock for a lot of people because we're used to reading and studying our entire life this pro-temple thing. And even when I read scholars who are pro-temple, they still make a lot of these like undercutting their own belief systems when they're writing, they're like, well, this is negative, this wasn't good. God didn't want this, God didn't want this. And they're like, it seems like God didn't want the temple. But it's the temple of God. So there's a lot of really good scholars who are really confused about And I'm not trying to put myself above them either. Like, I figured it all out. Because I'm not alone in this belief. I've done a lot of reading. A lot of reading on this issue. Because I really struggle with this kind of stuff. I struggle with... Everything doesn't seem positive here, but everything I've been taught has been positive. And then you go to all these commentaries, and they're positive, And there's a few people who are not, and you're like... Which one is it? And so when you've got these things that go cut right against the popular understanding of Christianity that has been around for a long time, everything in the Bible seems to suggest that that's not the way you should interpret it. But you also don't want to be that heretical guy who's going against everything that the church has ever believed. So I chew on these things for years before I start teaching them because I really struggle with that. I don't want to go off to stray, because, I mean, as a teacher, I mean, I'm held to a greater accountability, I'm also being attacked more than probably other people in the way that I think, because Satan wants that, but you've seen these leaders, and they just start off with this little minor aberration, then a little minor one, and then it gets bigger and bigger, and within 20 years, they're Jim Jones, and and I'm so scared of doing that, so, I've talked to lots of people, I've read lots of things, I've chewed on it, and it just seems to be really clear, this is not good. So that doesn't mean I'm right, but it does mean that I've carefully really thought through what I've said before I teach it, because I fear God way too much, So, um, in a good way. So it doesn't mean I'm right, but I am very quick to say... This isn't some willy-nilly thing I'm throwing out. And if you make a really good argument based on Scripture, I'm willing to change my mind. So, But I'm not alone. I'm not alone. There are some very phenomenal scholars. Here's the confusing part. The Bible is pro-temple at times. And it's anti-temple as well. We already talked about this in Samuel. Just like um, the Bible was pro-king and anti-king. And th- this is the conundrum. We have a God who is all-perfect and righteous, and his will is perfect. But his will does not always happen. And I don't mean that in a heretical denying the sovereignty of God. I mean that in God says his desires that none shall perish and no go to hell. But people do. So there's this thing called the divine sovereign will of God that always gets executed no matter what, because he is Yahweh and nothing will trump it. But there's also the will that's considered more the desires of God, that it is His will and desire that this happen, but He gives humanity free will and free choice. And that just muddies the waters when you're trying to figure out things. It muddies the waters when God shows grace in areas that they should be punished because they're going against God's will. And the law clearly says He must die, but God doesn't because He's a God of love. And His will is none that shall perish, but His will is also the law be executed." It muddies the waters when humans are doing things that they shouldn't be doing, but they're doing it for supposedly the right reasons, but kind of not the right reasons. And God tolerates it because the altar of the culture would just blow the whole thing up. And things just get complicated. It muddies the waters when God's very anti it, but he can use it for his good. And that's another thing we must understand. Just because he uses something for his good doesn't mean he's pro that. He uses us for his good, but that doesn't mean he's pro our every thought and every desire and every action that we have, even though he can turn a lot of those jacked-up desires into good things. And so this is the way that you may see the temple. The temple is totally negative, however God is going to allow it. So the first way that we know this is negative is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 4-7. through 7, Yahweh made it very clear that he never wanted a temple. He didn't just say, David, I don't want you to build a temple. He said, did I ever ask for a temple? In all the years that you've existed, did I ever once say, I need a stone building? No, I asked for a tent. I mean, if your kid was like, hey, Dad, I want to go to this. um, I thought you would need this, like, shotgun or something like that. You're like, did I ever ask for a shotgun? i never wanted a shotgun. When did you ever get the idea that this is a house that needed shotguns and I was a shotgun kind of a guy? You wouldn't be like, oh, so you want me my brother to get it for you instead. Okay, you wouldn't interpret it that way. You would be like, oh, crap, I totally misunderstood my dad. He never wanted this. And this made it very clear, too. God does not want things initiated by humans. God made it very clear, you will not build me a house, David. I will build you a house. And this is very important. God wants us to join him, but we do not initiate things without him. And when they wanted a king, they were initiating the execution of a king without God. God had not initiated it. They say David wanted a temple, and God said, no, I have not initiated that. I have not initiated that. And we have to be very careful about even if it seems good, because it's just a temple. There's nothing inherently morally wrong with a temple. But God didn't initiate it. And God didn't want it. And we have to be very careful about initiating things on our own, initiating a mission's trip to Africa. But it's a good thing, right? People in Africa need to know about Christ and its missions. But did God ever initiate that? Did he recall you to that? And we have to be very careful that we don't justify things just because they're good and we see how they can be used for good, yet it was not initiated by Yahweh. And I think we get in trouble a lot, maybe unknowingly, as a church when we just kind of go off and do things in the name of good things. But it was not initiated by Yahweh. That goes for so many things, career moves, jobs, jobs all kinds of stuff. We need to really be asking ourselves, are we praying about these things? And what God makes it very clear is that He initiates things. Not only that, when we get to Acts chapter 7, verse 51, when Stephen is giving his speech, he goes through the history of Israel, and he kind of makes it clear that the temple was built out of stubbornness and hard-heartedness of Israel. He, makes, he right there in the speech, said, God didn't want a temple. He didn't want a house because he can't be confined in a stone building. And some, chapter 7, verse 51 of the book of Acts. So even Stephen, through the Holy Spirit, looking back on his history in the hindsight of now Jesus Christ, says, God never wanted that. God never wanted that. Never, ever, ever once does the Bible ever compare Jesus to the temple." When you get to the book of Hebrews, Jesus compared to the tabernacle. And that's a huge theme because the whole book of Hebrews is how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything major in the First Testament. The sacrificial law, the law, the, the tabernacle, the, the, the priesthood, everything. He is the fulfillment. But it also goes out of its way to say that he's bigger and better and far superior to any of those things. And when he goes through all those moments, he goes to the tabernacle. In chapter 8 and 9, he talks about the tabernacle. Now, think about this. If you're trying to make an argument that Jesus is superior to things in Judaism, you're going to use the things that the Jews know about at that moment. The tabernacle hasn't existed since the time of Solomon. And everybody in the author of Hebrews' audience only knows the temple. That's all they've ever known. And if you're really going to make a comparison to Jesus being... Why not use the temple? It's got the same blueprint and the same layout, almost, as the tabernacle. It's what everybody physically knows and has experienced. They've never experienced the tabernacle. That's like me making an analogy to Christ being greater than, like, wagons or plows. We kind of know about them, but we haven't really experienced them. Not like Jesus being greater than a car. And yet, that's what he goes to. Because this is the whole point. And even when we get to John chapter 1, it says that Jesus came, the word came, and tabernacled among us. Now, not temple among us, a tabernacle among us. Because the whole point that God is trying to communicate is the tabernacle is not limited in where it can go. The, the minute the temple gets built, it's God becomes stuck, so to speak, in one place. The tabernacle can move all throughout Israel. And the tabernacle is drastically different because, in every single ancient culture and paganism, the temples of the gods were always built high up on mountains, way off in the wilderness somewhere, completely separated from people. In the beginning of the creation counts, there's a cosmic mountain. The first thing that happens in Egyptian mythology a cosmic mountain rises up out of the water. At the very top is Ra. And the Baal epic, a cosmic mountain, rises up as Zaphon, and Baal is at the top. Yet in the Garden of Eden, God builds a cosmic mountain. He separates the waters below, and he lifts the land out, and the land's flat. And he puts Adam and Eve on the cosmic mountain, and he puts himself in the cosmic mountain, so to speak, with Adam and Eve. And he dwells with them, right there in the garden. When he builds the tabernacle, he puts the tabernacle right there in the midst of the entire camp and he dwells with them, and he moves with them everywhere they go. When the temple gets built, it gets put up on a mountain, away from everybody else, separated by Solomon and his palace, elitism, and he's completely stationary, and now everybody has to come to God. And they have to ascend the mountain and prove their worth to get there. Solomon's completely changing the theology of the temple by building it and placing it on top of a mountain. And location is everything. Geography is everything. And where you put things communicates something, just as much as how it's designed. And so that must be understood, that they never, ever intended that. Not only that, what's going to happen is, no one ever claimed that God was in this one place and this one place only with the tabernacle. And nobody got elitist mindset in thinking, oh, God's with us and nothing bad can happen to us. Because the thing about the tabernacle is it kept moving around, so nobody could own the tabernacle and say, Oh, God's with us. He's more of a tribe of Judah than he is the tribe of Benjamin. And because God constantly was moving away from them, and he was so movable, the idea that he could abandon them if they were disobedient was very real to them. But once the tabernacle goes in Jerusalem, according to Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 34, Jeremiah 3, chapter seven verses one through thirty-four. Jeremiah goes on this big diatribe, where he basically makes the point that Israel, thinks specifically Judah thought that they could own God, and that God was limited to Judah and belonged to Judah alone, and nothing bad would ever happen to Judah because they had the tabernacle and God was in, sorry. They had the temple and God was in the temple, and the temple has been there stationary in Judah for so many years that God belongs to Judah, Judah has a monopoly on it. Oh, yeah, the ten northern tribes, they got taken into exile, but that's because they didn't have the temple. We have the temple, which means nothing bad could ever happen to us. And it actually is going to end up creating elitist mentality. And Jeremiah is going to condemn them for that. And so all these things show that God never wanted this. God never intended this. Is the reason, like reason David and Solomon had these plans for the temple? Is that why they left the t- tabernacle out? Maybe. Maybe David. Part of it is David is also shifting the power. Where the Ark of the Covenant is, if he can shift into Jerusalem where the politics is, it gives the politics more authority. But he also might be leaving the tabernacle away because that's a great insight. Because remember in the chapter 3 it says, and they were sacrificing the high places because they didn't have a temple yet. Maybe because David's propaganda machine was beginning to de-emphasize the tabernacle to make them hungry for a temple. Because if a temple came to the city, then now I have political and religious power being mixed together. So it could have been a long-term agenda to make something happen, or it could be a subconscious thing that he was doing. But yes, that's a very, very good insight. The second reason that the temple was not good Is because God never gave instructions for its building. In Exodus chapter 25 through 31, that's a lot of chapters. God goes through minute details of how the tabernacle is to be designed and built. And then in chapters 35 through chapters 40, he goes through minute details of how it was built. And he makes it very clear several times we talked about this is called um, commandment, fulfillment. When the, the God goes through great details of what they're supposed to do, and then he repeats those exact same details again, even though it takes five chapters, word for wording, he says, they did everything as he commanded. So he's making it very clear. He specifically instructed all this to be done. They specifically did everything that he said, and they did everything in his approval, and he entered it. Not once does God ever design the temple. Not once does he ever speak it to be done. Not once does he go to Solomon and say, today is the day you're going to start it. Not once does he guide it. Not once does he give details of how he wanted it to be done. Not once does it say, they did everything as God had commanded it to be done. You do not see God's hand in all this. In fact, in the middle of the temple building, God shows up and interrupts the temple. It's abrupt. And you're like, whoa, that was kind of abrupt. The narrator, some people even said the narrator got messed up and confused and, like, put it in the wrong place and he should have waited longer. You'd be surprised how many people say this. Like, this guy can write better than you can, and yet you're, like, criticizing for how he writes. So, I mean, this is a literary piece of artwork. He interrupts it, and God warns him and says, remember, if you do everything I command you and everything then it will go well for you. And he never makes one comment about the temple. Like, how's it going? Oh, look, I see that you did it the way I wanted to. And he completely ignores it. It's almost like he's saying, do you honestly think this is going to win my favor? Not once does God ever mention the temple. Even when he's interrupting it and talking to Solomon, even when he talks to Solomon after the temple is built, he never mentions it. He never gives instructions for it. And he never talks about how this is a fulfillment of his word. And we were used to that so many times in the book of Kings. It says to fulfill God's word. This happened to fulfill God's word. This happened to fulfill God's word. It's completely absent here. Completely absent. When you are having the tabernacle built, the artisans that were called by God, they were actually gifted by God. And the spirit of God came upon them to give them the ability to craft it nowhere does it ever say that Hiram was gifted by God. And nowhere does the Spirit of God ever come upon him in his crafting of the temple. And that's a huge one too, because that means not only is it being built with forced labor, with pagan blueprints, all that kind of stuff, but it's being built by a guy that actually does not have the Spirit of God on him as he's building it. Third, the temple looks more like a pagan temple than a biblical one. It's built with stones and it's built to look like Phoenician architecture. The architecture looks a lot more like Phoenician. You're like, when the temple, when you look at it, you're like, oh, that looks a lot like the, the, the buildings in the Washington, D.C., and that looks a lot like the Roman architecture. Because the buildings in Washington, D.C. were taken from Roman architecture, it was taken from Phoenician architecture. And so he doesn't build it to look Jewish. He builds it to look like pagan Phoenician architecture. And we'll talk about this again, but not only that, he puts bulls, giant oxen, around the wash basin. You shall have no graven images. And he puts graven images all around the wash basin to cleanse you of your sins as you're standing next to the graven image. Not only that, when he builds the cherubim, he builds the cherubim to look more like the Phoenician version of a cherubim and he builds them, and they're huge. They're way bigger than the Ark of the Covenant. They're like almost two stories tall, and the Ark of the Covenant is only like a couple feet tall. And when he put it in there, the Bible specifically says the cherubim overshadowed the Ark of the Covenant. That's significant. That's like saying, and the cherubim overshadowed Yahweh. Because that's what the Ark of the Covenant represents. All the designs are very pagan, very Phoenician. They do not resemble the tabernacle except the articles that are in the temple and where they're located, but that's it. But even then, he goes all Texas on God. He supersizes everything. <laughs> he basically... He doesn't just put a lampstand in there. He puts 10 lampstands in there. So no longer you, do you have the number 7, you now have the number 700. Okay? And then he doesn't put one table of bread, and he puts 10 table of showbreads. He just makes everything bigger and better. And God never, ever wanted that. He wanted central locations. Central locations. Fourth, Exodus chapter 20, verse 25, Deuteronomy 27, verse 5 and 6, Joshua 8, verse 30 and 31 makes it very clear that no altars, no memorials to God should ever be crafted with human hands. Everything that you build to represent God, an altar or a memorial. Remember, God says, Joshua, go get these stones out of the river and stack them up, but be sure that you do not touch these with a tool. Moses, go build an altar for the tabernacle, but be sure that you do not touch it with a tool. He makes it very clear why, because the minute we start putting our craftsmanship on that thing that's supposed to be connected to Yahweh, we start getting the idea, look at what I built. Rather than humbling ourselves before God, we're like, man, I mean, I've done it. I've built lots of things. And I don't mean this in a prideful way, but when I look at my girls' beds, I'm like, wow, I can't believe I built that. Those look really good. I didn't think it would turn out that well. I also see all the defects and the imperfections, but... Or the swings that I built, okay? Or these things, and I think, wow, that's so, I can't believe I did that. Can you imagine every time you go into church, and you're supposed to be humbling yourself and sacrificing God, you're like, wow, this amazing altar I built, okay? And, and God didn't want that. He didn't want you to credit for it. He didn't want you to, it's supposed to be all about Yahweh, and you're mixing it with your skills and your talents. You know how Solomon got around it? He crafted the stones at the quarry. And then he moved them to the temple, and it says, so that he would not violate Exodus, not a sound of a tool could be heard at the temple site. What, where in the heck did you get that interpretation, Solomon? All the time the Bible says, do not touch this altar or this memorial with tools. And Solomon's like, well, if they can't hear the tools at the temple site, then I'm not violating the law. What? That doesn't even make sense. That's something like my little daughter would say. So it's th- th- a total violation. So every time you look at the temple, every single stone, the pillars in the front of it, the stone buildings, the altars, the wash basins, everything is going to make you think of the great artist Hiram Abiff, not the natural creation that God created of rocks and all that kind of stuff. You're not no longer seeing the beauty of a sunset you're seeing the beauty of a Mona Lisa. And it doesn't make you think, Mona Lisa is a phenomenal, but it doesn't make you think, wow, God is amazing. It makes you think, wow, isn't it incredible what humans can do? But a sunset in a mountain does not make you think about how amazing God, humans are. And that's what God wanted. Fifth, Solomon used forced labor to build the temple. That means from the very beginning, the temple is tainted. Not only did he use forced labor of his own people, he used forced labor of pagans. The Bible made it very clear that only willing volunteers were allowed to build the tabernacle. And that no pagan was allowed to even get anywhere close to the tabernacle, let alone to enter it, let alone to build it. And Solomon completely violated that. Nobody's doing it with a cheerful heart. Nobody's doing it with thankfulness or willingness They're doing it because you're going to get a whip on the back if you don't. And the Mahatma people, relatively speaking, I don't know if it's exactly 50%, don't even believe in this God as they're building it. Six. I already talked about this. I kind of got out of the word. Um, The whole purpose of the tabernacle was to be moving around, not to be stationary. So I kind of jumped the gun on that one. Seventh. The tabernacle was never attacked or destroyed. Not once did an invading army, raiders, ever attack it. Not once did they ever invade it and carry anything out. There was one, one, one time that it was entered by pagans. It was not attacked. They never stole anything. But the very end of book of Numbers, Zimri brought the prostitute from the Moabites, Crosby, into the tabernacle and had sexual relations there, and Phineas completely rectified that instantaneously with a javelin. But it wasn't specifically attacked. it wasn't specifically raided. It was just defiled with sin, and it was immediately purified. But not once was the tabernacle ever destroyed, ever attacked. The temple is repeatedly attacked from this point on. It's repeatedly robbed, and twice it will be destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 and by the Romans in 70 A.D. If God really wanted the temple, nothing would have happened to it because it would be His. God does not let man destroy what He built. It never, ever happens. But God often lets man destroy what man built. And that right there says a huge thing about that. Not only that, the temple was Briefly mentioned from this point on. It shows up a little bit in Joash's story and Josiah's story. And then it's being but the only there's a few times. So the next time it's mentioned, it's being robbed and attacked by Shishak, the Pharaoh of Egypt. The next time it's mentioned, they've let it go and they've gone in disarray and Joash tries to rebuild it. The next one is Josiah rebuilds it, and the next time after that, Nebuchadnezzar's destroying it. The whole rest of kings. It's very rarely even mentioned and most times mentioned negative things happening to it. These things make it very clear that God did not want this. And even if he did want it, Solomon's totally defiling it as it's being built. God never wanted a temple. If he did, he would have asked for it. Here's what you would put on the pro side of the temple. One, the Spirit of God enters into the temple. And that makes you think that God approves it. In a way, he kind of does. Two, the prophets are going to get on the Israelites for not rebuilding the temple. But to that, I would say this. That goes right back to the fact that God never wanted a king in the way that God, the people wanted a king, but he said, but I'll give you a king. Because sometimes God allows what he explicitly condemns because of the stubbornness and the rebellions and the persistence of the people. Sometimes God allows. So he never wanted a king the way that they wanted it. But he gave him a king so it would punish them. And he approved the picking of Saul, but that does not mean that he approved of Saul as a godly king. And remember, he didn't say, I'm approving of Saul because he's going to lead you towards me. He says, I'm approving of Saul so that you'll be punished with a king like all the other nations and get what you want. And then you'll come back to me when you realize that that's not really what I wanted. Same thing with the temple. Just because his glory is entering it does not mean he's approving of the way it was built or housed. But here's the other thing. Part of it too is this, this is the big one. If the people, the people are already ignoring him. He already told David he didn't want it and David ignored it. They had the word and they're ignoring it. So the reality is they're gonna build it anyways. So just like Joseph's brothers sold him to slavery, even though God didn't want that, he used it for good. Without a temple or a tabernacle, there is no sacrificial system. And so God allows for it because there needs to be a sacrificial system. And when he gets to Ezra and Nehemiah, the reason he's pushing that the building of the temple has to be done so much is because there's no way they're going to build a tabernacle after they've seen the temple of Solomon. And without a temple or a tabernacle, there is no sacrificial system. And without a sacrificial system, there's no atonement of sins. In that sense, God says, fine, if you want a temple, then build a temple. But that's not what I care about. What I want is a sacrificial system. And that's the main emphasis there. Even when Haggai and Zechariah are condemning the Jews for not rebuilding it, their focus is on the sacrificial system. How can you say that you're right with God and you want to get right when there are no sacrifices happening. And the focus is sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. Then when Christ becomes the perfect sacrifice, the temple is destroyed. You don't need anymore. Because now we're the temple and Christ is a sacrifice. So those are the two biggest arguments, the one that you just mentioned, and the fact that the glory of God enters, that could be a strong argument for why God is pro-temple. But once again, there's so many arguments against it. And the fact that it's already been defiled. I mean, three of these were blatant disobedience of God that he specifically mentions several times in Exodus and Joshua and Deuteronomy. Do not do. So at best, they've defiled the temple. At worst, he doesn't even want it. So even if you want to be pro-temple, which I'm okay if you think the evidence is that way, you still have to admit that it's been defiled. And it hasn't been built in the right way because it completely and blatantly disobeys several scriptures. And yet, despite that, God's glory still enters it. So even if you wanted the temple, you're still dealing with the problem of why did his glory enter it if it was defiled already. And I think at this point, it's just like sometimes if you have a rebellious kid or something like that, there's so many things you want to slap them for but you can't slap them with everything because you might not have any relationship and they might not be alive to redeem them. And so there's some things you just kind of tolerate and put up with because you gotta deal with these things first. And you're just so overwhelmed with all the sin and rebellion in their life, you're just, I can't handle it all at once. Has anybody ever faced that? <laughs> okay, yeah. And you're just like, I just gotta focus on this. What is the thing that is hindering our relationship more than anything else? That's all I had the energy to focus on. If I can at least focus on that thing that's hindering our relationship the most, then maybe when I get that fixed or that dealt with or they turn back to me on that one, then all the other stuff can start falling into place because now we have a relationship. So what is it that's hindering the relationship with God more than anything else? Not having a sacrificial system. If I can get the atonement of sins dealt with, then I can deal with all those other things. Like I said, I can't, there's no place where God says, well, actually there is, but I don't want a temple, but there's no place where God says that after the temple is being built. But everything seems to be pointed. But when I'm saying, I told you this is, this is Bible 400. And I think the constant repetitive violation of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Joshua should be throwing some red flags up. Hey, this doesn't seem like it's a good idea.